Thank you, friends. You uh, already know my heart for college ministry, but you keep seeing things that uh, prove out my heart and prove out why it's important that we reach out to these students that are on this campus of SFA. Jason is a direct, uh, for lack of better terms, child of discipleship of Gary Davis pouring into his life and encouraging him uh, to be on mission. And uh, I shared this with the group that was here Wednesday night that was listening uh, to uh, the university pastor uh, from University Heights in Huntsville, Texas, who's getting ready to plant a church. Uh, I shared with all the people that were here that we are a missionary church, and part of the way that we are a missionary church is by encouraging college students, like the beautiful college students that we here have here with us, to be people who are on mission, who will go out and who will share the gospel. There are literally people all over the world right now who've been influenced uh, because of their four years or five years or six years, depending on what kind of students they were, uh, but the years that they spent here in Nacogdoches in the churches who invested in them. Nothing makes me more angry, so you will understand this from the very beginning, but nothing makes me more angry than for people to say, which they do every once in a while, will say to me, college students bring nothing to the table. There is not an ounce of truth in that. College students bring everything to the table except usually their checkbook and that's okay I don't care listen to me this is really important that you hear me say this I don't care if these college students ever invest a dime in our church what I do care is that we invest in their lives because when we invest in their lives the world will be changed and I believe that with all my heart. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's really important for me to repeat this to you. So if you were here Wednesday night, I apologize. But uh, when I was on a mission trip uh, to Africa, to Tanzania, uh, Laura and I and several other people went to a college campus there called the University of Dar es Salaam, which is the capital it would be like going to the University of Texas or to Texas A&M in, in, in our state, but it would be if our state only had one incredible university. We have many incredible universities. But in Tanzania, the University of Dar es Salaam is the university. It's the university where all, everybody goes that's anybody in Tanzania. And we had missionaries there uh, named Travis and Charity Jones who are about Gary and Krista's age. And uh, uh, we, we got to be really good friends with them, Laura and I did. And they had, uh, just like we have a college worship experience once a month called 936 uh, that happens in downtown Nacogdoches, uh, at the University of Dar es Salaam, Travis and Charity had started a college worship event there on the campus. And we went to that university worship experience. It was amazing. Uh, 150 African uh, Tanzanian students 
uh, sitting in an auditorium worshiping God on that evening. And Laura and I were just blown away. And I turned to Travis. I'll never forget this. I turned to Travis and I said, Travis, what is the importance of doing college ministry here at the University of Dar es Salaam? Why do you do this? And he, he did not hesitate. He turned back to me and he said, Bobby, I know. It's not, not that I believe or not that I think, but history has proven that the president of Tanzania is sitting at this campus right now. He's studying at this campus. For the last generation, every president of Tanzania has attended the University of Dar es Salaam. And now there's a president that is attending class. We don't know who he is. We don't know his name, but we know that he's here. And if we can convert him, if he can come to faith in Christ, then we can change the country of Tanzania. And when he told me that, I thought every penny is worth it. Every opportunity that we have to go and, and take the gospel to a place like the University of Dar es Salaam or take the gospel to a place like Portland is important to us because we never know who's sitting there. We never know who might be the next one to hear the gospel story. And so it's apparent and uh, imperative for us to be the ones who take it. That's why I am so thrilled to pastor a church like our church who says we don't want to sit in these seats. We want to get up and we want to go and we want to tell the gospel story. And we want to go tell it at our places of where we work. We want to go tell it at the, the places in our community. We want to go tell it in our state. We want to go tell it in our world. And as long as I'm your pastor, that's what we're going to keep doing. So I am thankful for you. Hear me say that. Galatians chapter 6. We're finishing this. We're, we're crossing the finish line. Paul is closing with the responsibility of he, here. He, he's going to lay out the responsibility that we have because we have freedom. So for five plus chapters, Paul has been kind of frustrated. You know that with the church at Galatia. He's, he's been angry even with them because they've begun to mix the law with God's grace. And he knows that the law has nothing to do with God's grace. It's God's grace and God's grace alone that saves us. And so he's going to come and he's going to preach freedom. We have freedom in Jesus. We have freedom in Jesus. And he's going to close out this chapter almost the way you would close out a chapter. If you were writing this, he's going to say, hey, I've tried to hammer home to you, you're free, but with that freedom comes responsibility. It's just a couple of weeks ago that I, I showed you the movie clip where uh, Mel Gibson is, is in Braveheart is yelling out, freedom, and he wants everybody to be free. And I, I told you about how important it was that Paul was hammering home the importance of freedom. But now Paul is going to hammer home, and it would be really perfect if, uh, if Mel Gibson would have said, freedom, but you got some responsibility. And he didn't do that. He just screams out freedom. Well, Paul screamed out freedom for a couple of chapters now, and now he's going to say, hey, you've got some responsibility too. It's going to be pretty impressive because what you're going to find out here at the, at the very end, and, and trust me, we'll be there in just a few minutes, but when we get to the very end, uh, Paul says, guess what comes with your freedom? A whole lot of scarring on your life. It's going to be pretty tough to be free. If you really want to be free, you have to be willing to suck it up. 
and be wounded for the cause. That's, that's pretty impressive. Now, when we talk about freedom and responsibility, none of us are really big on the responsibility part. And I, I get that. And I'm not talking about just in our, in our Christian life, but I'm talking about in general. Uh, you know, part of the maturing process is you begin to understand that even though you're free, you have responsibility. One of the great things about working with college students is to see where they are in life now. Because for the first time in their life, they have some freedom. And now they're trying to figure out how does that responsibility work within that freedom. And so one of the great things that, that Gary gets to do and, and, and Jason Hill gets to do and Jason Sperling gets to do, anybody who works with college students, some of you who are uh, professors, what you get to see happen with these guys right here and all the students who attend SFA and everywhere else for that matter is you get to see them maneuver through life trying to figure out how much responsibility goes with the freedom that I've been given. One of the things that uh, Laura and I talk about all the time, I, I mean, I still even talk about it with my kids who are 30 or 31 and 32. You know, Evan will call me from McKinney and he'll talk to me about something and it will be something that's kind of frustrating him. And I'll say, so adulting's not that much fun, is it? And he'll go, no, I don't like it sometimes. And I go, guess what? That's your rest of your life. You're going to find out that being an adult is not as much fun as it seems like. So for all those years growing up, we want to get to adulthood. But then when we finally get there, it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, I've got responsibility too. That's exactly what Paul is laying out here as he closes out his letter in, uh, to the church at Galatia, especially in chapter 6. I, I read an interesting thing about Queen Victoria as I was preparing for this uh, uh, study, uh, this sermon this morning. Uh, Queen Victoria was a little girl about seven or eight years old in school, and she was not doing well in school. She was being disobedient. Uh, she wasn't studying hard, and, and a lot of things weren't going as well as the royal family had hoped it would go for Queen Victoria. And finally, her mother sat her down and said, you need to understand something. You will one day be the queen of England. And she exclaimed back to her mother, I had no idea, honestly, that that was my future responsibility. And it's been written that from that moment on, she changed how she lived her life. That is exactly what Paul is doing to us here. Now, Paul, for the first five chapters, he's been telling us and hammering home the fact that we are saved by faith and faith alone. And it's grace and grace alone that gives us that salvation. Salvation doesn't come by us being obedient. Salvation doesn't come by us following the law. So that's been hammered home. If you haven't heard that, you just haven't been listening and you haven't been reading the book of Galatians. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you understand that you're set free from the law. That's, that's what it's been telling us. Is, is We no longer have to be obedient to the law 
itself because it's not what gives us our salvation. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's what gives us our salvation. Because of what he did on the cross, we have victory over sin. That's what's been hammered home in Galatians. You can be victorious over your sinful life, not by being obedient to the law, but by what Jesus did for you on the cross. I love what I was able to pull out of a commentary. It said this, being saved by grace doesn't mean you can sin with total abandon, but it does mean you can abandon your sin. Let me say that to you again. Being saved by grace does not mean you can sin with total abandon, but it does mean that you can totally abandon sin because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Galatians is really a book about experiencing victory. I hope you've seen that in the weeks that we've been preaching these sermons, that you can experience victory because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Finally, just like I told you, what we're about to do is look at some of the marks that believers have. And my question will be to you as we finish this morning in just a few minutes, the question will be this, what marks do you have on your body to prove that you're a believer? Paul will talk about that. He'll talk about his marks on his body. And it becomes important for us to say, hey, if I'm really a believer, do, does my body show it? Let's read this together. Now, we read last week Galatians 6, 1 through 10. This morning, we're going to read 11 through the finish of the chapter. But I'm going to use the whole chapter as the text for three things that I want to share with you this morning. Will you do the, uh, our Father the favor of standing as we read Galatians 6, verse 11 through verse 18? See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. This is Paul. And he says, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. What Paul is saying there is the law doesn't mean anything, whether you're obedient or not obedient to it. The only things that count is that you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take the reading of your word and you would take the words that will come out of my mouth and that you will empower them through the Holy Spirit. Father, may you hide me behind the cross. And Father, may the words touch all of us this morning. Father, may you speak to my heart even this morning. And Father, may we walk out of here bravely and boldly willing to bear the marks of Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share with you three things about freedom. I think we all have a responsibility 
that comes with the freedom that's given us in Jesus Christ. And I know that even in these scriptures, we can pull out three things that show us what the responsibility is that comes along with the freedom in Christ. Now, one of the cool things about the scripture is it's always up to date. It's always relevant. Will you look with me at verse 11 in chapter 6? I, I love how this just is so relevant to us today. See what Paul says? He's writing a letter to the church at Galatia, and it's no different 2,000 years ago than it is today. He says this, see what large letters I use when I write to you with my own hand. When I first started uh, texting people, uh, it was just easier for me to put all caps. And so I would text people and just put all caps. And I still have one friend who does that with me all the time, just always caps. And I never knew until people who were younger than me and way cooler with, than me came up to me and said, why are you screaming at us whenever you text us? And I said, what does that mean? And they said, well, you put everything in all caps. And I said, well, I, what does that mean? And they said, well, when you put everything in all caps, it means that you're screaming at us. Our staff has all kinds of fun with Stephanie, my assistant, Stephanie Van Dyke, because everything that she texts to us, she texts and then goes, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And it, it may be something as simple like, I've got to take my dog to the vet, exclamation point, exclamation point, you know. And, and so now we've all started messing with her. So when we send anything back to her, even if it just says, see you in a little while, we'll put exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And so we have this running joke going with our staff now. This is not a joke. And Paul is writing, and he puts down in here, hey, I don't know if you've noticed in this letter that I've been writing to you, but in this letter that I've been writing to you, especially when we've gotten to this last point, I'm writing it in really large letters so that you can understand how important it is that I'm telling you that you're free. But with that freedom comes responsibility. And it's important that you live your life with that responsibility. So what is the responsibility that comes when we have freedom? Let me share with you three things that I think are pretty obvious in Scripture. Read back chapter 6, verse 1 with me again. We shared with this uh, a little bit last week. We're going to recover it again just for a moment when we talk about the responsibility that comes with freedom. But look at verse 1. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. So what do we have a responsibility for when we've been made free in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing that Paul tells us in chapter 6 is this. You have a responsibility to other people. When you've been set free, you have a responsibility to other people. And part of that responsibility is to restore them when they're struggling. Do you know somebody who's struggling right now? Do you know somebody who's struggling with their faith? Do you know somebody who's struggling uh, with the church, maybe our church or maybe some other church? Uh, your responsibility is to restore them. Do you know somebody who's struggling with sin right now? They're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They, they're not doing what Scripture says they're supposed to be doing. Then the, the responsibility that you have is to restore them. It's important that you understand that it has to be done gently and humbly. It's not you going in with guns blazing and saying, let me tell you how screwed up you are. It's you going in and saying, hey, brother, as a brother in Christ, let me tell you something. I know that you're struggling right now. And I want to help you. How can I help you? 
How can I wrap my arms around you? How, how can I love you? How can I be of any assistance to you? That's the responsibility that comes with freedom to us, is that we get to reach out and we get to love on other people, and, and we get to help restore them. The restoration process is an incredibly sweet thing. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. And when it works well, and it, when it works according to Scripture, it's an amazing God thing to see people restored into their faith. That's what we get to, to get to do. Uh, I wrote this down. It's just something that I picked up from a book I was reading, but I, I really enjoyed what it says. I wrote down, restoration involves much more than the fingers and the lungs. Let me, let me break that down for you. Restoration involves much more than the fingers and the lungs. When we go to restore people, a lot of times it does no good for us to use our fingers and point and tell them what they're doing wrong. And that's our first kind of indication a lot of times of something that we want to do. Oh, there's somebody in sin. Let me point out that sin. Let me point out that sin. Let me show them something that they're doing wrong. The other thing is we want to verbalize a lot of times how bad they are. We want to use our lungs and our voices and we want to exclaim to them how much they are in the wrong. And I believe and I think scripture teaches that there's a lot of times when we can restore somebody when we just walk along beside them and we make ourselves available and, and when we just talk to them uh, in not a screaming voice, but in a loving, kind voice. I think that's what Paul is trying to do here. Sometimes it may not come across like that, but I think Paul is a good example of somebody who's walked alongside the church and said, how can I help bring you back correctly? <clears throat> One of the things that the book of Galatians really shows us is that Paul does hit the hammer a couple of times, but he gets real loving too. And that's a good balance for you and I to kind of find. That sometimes we, we need to be firm in our convictions, but we need to be loving in our understanding of what's going on in other people's lives. I encourage you to do that. So if, you, if you're going to be free, which is what Paul is trying to push with us, all six chapters of the book of Galatians, if you're truly going to be free, then one of the responsibilities that comes with that freedom is to love other people gently back to the faith, to restore them. For somebody like Jason, it's, it's meeting people that aren't like you and me. Uh, boy, when you, when you go to the Northwest, and I've had the privilege to go up there a few times. I've been on the campus of Washington State University. I've actually been in Portland and, uh, in Portland and worked with a church in Portland. But you run into all different kinds of characters and they aren't East Texas characters, man. They're, they are different folks and different than you and different than me. And sometimes you've got to figure out a way to love them that wouldn't fit your model or my model. And it's got to fit God's model. I, I was fascinated uh, the other day uh, to, to listen uh, to uh, Chris when he was sharing on Wednesday night. Uh, Chris Millar is the university pastor I was telling you about and uh, he is planning a church close to the campus of Texas State University in, in San Marcos <coughs> and uh, 
few weeks ago, he was there with about 75, 50, 75 college students, and they had prepared to host a big event uh, close to the river in San Marcos. And unbeknownst to him, until about uh, two hours before the event, uh, they found out that they were going to have a gay pride event just across the bridge on the other side. And he was worried. He was worried about a couple of things. He said, I'm, I'm worried about how my students will respond to that event, and, and I'm worried about how uh, the gay pride people will respond to our event. And he wanted his students to respond in love. He wanted his students to respond with the gospel in love. No other way. That's, that's how you win people to Christ. You don't win people to Christ by holding up signs telling them they're going to hell. So they knew that there was no other option, so they held their event. Well, sure enough, their event included food, and the pride event didn't include food. And all the pride people wanted to come over and eat their food. And he said it was the sweetest thing because they came over dressed very differently, acting very differently, but sat amongst us. And he said, we just love them. And they listened to us. Nobody got mad. Nobody got aggravated. Nobody got frustrated. Nobody threw Bibles. Uh, nobody flaunted their stuff in front of them. They just had wonderful conversation. That's what Paul is saying to us here, that when we go to restore, we go to restore in love. Jason Sperlin will be the first to tell you that when you go to Portland, you're going to be put in situations that probably aren't, or probably aren't comfortable uh, in what we are used to. That's okay. In fact, that's what Paul talks about here later in the scripture when he talks about bearing the mark. He, he basically is saying, when, when you proclaim the gospel, you're going to get marks. And it's not going to be comfortable all the time. Let me share with you, I, I told you about the responsibility that comes along with freedom that we have to others. Let me share with you the second thing is the responsibility that we have to ourselves. Uh, the scripture says, when you look at, at verse uh, 7 and following, it says, Do not be deceived. God can't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from that spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in well-doing. For as the, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. What, what we have a responsibility here in our freedom, not only to others, but what Paul is saying now here is we have a responsibility to ourselves. When, when you are set free in Christ, you are free indeed. And that freedom means that you are to be responsible to yourself. One of the ways that you're responsible to yourself and one of the things that he's telling us here in Scripture is you don't compare yourself to others. So you don't look at Susie and say, man, Susie is such a better believer than I am. She does so many more things. That makes me invaluable to the kingdom. No, it doesn't make you invaluable. It just means that your assets and your gifts that God has given you are different than what Susie's has. Man, there's some fantastic cooks in this church. 
in just a few minutes, you're going to get to go experience that. Amen? Amen. Amen. And you're saying right now, if you would hurry, we could do it faster. And I get that. But what I'm telling you is you don't want me cooking anything that's over there. That, that's not my gift. Uh, I, you know, the only thing that you would want me to cook that is over there would be some kind of a meat. You know, that's kind of what guys do. We do meat. And I can do meat, but I can't do anything else. But there's some people that are in this body that are incredibly gifted, and they've used their gifts and talents this morning to help us eat well. That's, that's all Paul's saying here, is be, be responsible to yourself. And don't compare yourself to others. He's saying live your life out with being responsible to yourself because what you reap, what you will reap, you will sow one day. And so it's important for you to reap good things because you will sow good things one day. <clears throat> I, I, I love kind of what I've written down here. I know that sounds weird, but listen, listen out. Hear me out. Our, our motive is to be not the threat of health. Your motive to be good is not the threat of health. It's the promise of heaven. That's what ought to motivate you and make you go crazy to be on fire for the kingdom. It's what's coming. Not what's here now, but it's what's coming. So my question to you as a believer, and my question to me as a believer, is what really motivates me? What gets me fired up to do well? I thought about this, especially with knowing that there's coaches in the room and coaches that I really admire and respect. And, and, and I thought about the coaches who coached me when I was growing up and how they motivated me. And uh, I had two different types of coaches in my life. And this is pretty typical for probably all of you. But I had a coach uh, that I remember very well who was a screamer. And he motivated me or tried to motivate me by screaming. Uh, screaming does not motivate me. Never has and never will. Problem is that uh, a lot of people think that's what motivates people. But I had another coach who was an encourager. Uh, in fact, my, one of my favorite coaches was a guy named Leonard Fawcett. And I, I think I may have told you this story before, uh, but Coach Fawcett really motivated me. Uh, I, I had a coach tell me that I would never make varsity basketball when I was a sophomore. And uh, so I played on the JV team uh, my sophomore and junior year. Well, guess who was my coach? Coach Fawcett was my coach. And he encouraged me all the time when I was playing basketball. Uh, what was fascinating about encouraging me is that he still pushed me and he would still uh, get in my face. So don't hear me say that he didn't do those kinds of things, but he encouraged me by sometimes getting in my face and sometimes pushing me to the limit. Coach Fawcett, uh, it's, not, it's not funny, it's just the, 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 the realistic uh, of who he is, the realism of who he is. Coach Fawcett only had one arm. Uh, he had his right arm. His left arm was amputated when he was a child. And uh, so 
Coach Fawcett, one of the favorite things that he did to push me was he would always want to play me one-on-one. -on -one. And so we would play basketball one-on-one. -on -one. And, of course, he was in his 30s then. I was just about 15, 16. And he would always do stuff and push me playing one-on-one. -on -one. But one of his favorite things was to fake with his, and he called it this, he said, I'll, I would fake with my stump and then I would go around and he would make a basket. And he would do that so many times. And so many times he would beat me. And so many times he would turn around and Smith, he would say this. He would say, Smith, how many times are you going to fall for the stump? <laughs> I would say, I don't know, coach. You think I would figure it out now that you can't go left? You would think I would know that you can only dribble right. And he would say, when you get that figured out, you're going to be a good basketball player. <laughs> well, I don't know that I completely ever got it figured out, but I did make varsity my senior year. Part of it was because Coach Fawcett encouraged me, and part, part of it was because I grew six inches between my junior and senior year. Both those things helped. I will tell you an interesting story. I, I, have, uh, uh, I was helping with the SFA track team one time. And uh, I looked over, and there was a man with one arm who was coaching for Northwestern Louisiana. And I walked around to go look at his face. And I walked up to him, and I said, do you know who I am? And he said, you're Smith. And I said, yes, sir, Coach Fawcett, I'm Bobby Smith. And he, he hugged me and said, I remember you. And there was a great reunion because I was able to say, I remember you and I remember the difference you made in my life. It's good stuff when people will do those kinds of things. So not only do you have a responsibility uh, to others, not only do you have a responsibility to yourself, but finally, <clears throat> let me close with this. And this is what Paul closes with from about verse 9 through the end of the chapter. But he basically says that we have a responsibility to persevere to the very end. We have a responsibility to perseverance. So a lot of you, I know sometimes, uh, get this feeling. And the feeling is that you're ready to quit. You're ready to quit the church. You're ready to quit your faith. You're ready to quit everything and, and, and just give it all up. Because it's just not worth the time and the effort. And Paul is saying to you, Especially verse 9, if you look at verse 9, he says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we are going to reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. People, don't give up. I know it's hard sometimes. I know it's hard coming to church sometimes. I know it's hard walking in the faith sometimes. I know it's hard going on mission trips. I, I know it's hard uh, giving money. I know those things are hard, and there's so much more that's hard. But Paul says when you're free, one of the responsibilities you have is to persevere, is to not give up. Uh, I, I, I still am fascinated uh, when, when I study different people or different things or different happenings where, where people were so close and they gave up. 
If, if you go home today and you want to Google something, Google uh, Antiques Roadshow. I know this is bizarre. Google Antique Roadshow and Google <coughs> Navajo Indian Blankets. I happened to be watching this when it happened, bizarre circumstance, and it happened in 2001 or 2002, I think. Um, but there, were, there was a man that came on the Antique Roadshow. His name was Ted. And Ted brought uh, a Navajo Indian blanket. And the guy, uh, and if you read the story, you'll, you'll, you'll see about this. But the guy who was appraising it, the antiques expert who was appraising it, when, when he walked in with that Navajo Indian blanket, he saw it, and he had security guards go stand by the blanket and by the man, which the guy's name is Ted, who brought the antique, uh, yeah, who brought the Navajo blanket. And uh, so Ted knew something kind of was going on. But anyhow, uh, during the filming process, uh, the guy who was uh, the, the antiques expert said, uh, so tell me a little bit about this blanket. And he said, well, this blanket has been uh, on, uh, folded in, on, on the back of my chair that I sit in when I watch TV. And I know it's an, a Navajo blanket. I, I've been told that it's a Navajo blanket. And I've been told, I don't know that I have any paperwork proving it, but I've, I've been told that Kit Carson uh, gave it to my grandfather. And uh, it's just kind of been passed down through generations. And he said, uh, now, now I have it sitting uh, on my chair, and I use it to cover up sometimes when I'm watching TV. And the guy's just shaking his head. He's going. He said, well, let me tell you a little bit about this blanket. And he said, this is probably the most original first edition Navajo Indian blanket that I've ever seen in my life. And he said, not only that, it's, it's almost in perfect condition. Uh, he said, not only that, he said, it's, it's incredibly valuable. And he turned to the man and he said, do you have any idea what this blanket is worth? And the guy said, well, I... I have no idea. He said, I, I knew something was going on when you kind of acted different when I walked in with it, but he said, I have no idea. And he said, well, in today's market, this is 2001, he said, in today's market, on a bad day, this blanket would bring $350,000. He said, on a good day, it would bring a half a million dollars. And he said, are you a wealthy man? And he just started tearing. And he said, no. He said, I'm not wealthy at all. But the thing that was kind of overwhelming, and you have to really dig to find this. You may not find this in the segment you watch or anything. But if you do the research, you find out that the man had been, uh, the blanket had been passed down to the man by his grandparents. And he even says in the film clip, he said, my my grandparents were just poor people who, who farmed the land and never had any money. The understanding here, and what I want you to grasp as you get the opportunity possibly to ever watch that video, but even if you don't, if you just listen to the story, here's what I want you to grasp. is There were some poor farmers back in the early 1900s that had 
value untold that they had no idea about. And they passed that on to their children. And they had value untold that they had no idea about. And then they passed it on to this man named Ted, their grandson, who he even didn't realize the value of what he had until he took it to the expert. And once the expert saw it, he said, let me explain to you the value of what you're carrying in your hand. That's what Paul is trying to explain to you and me here as he closes out the book of Galatians. He's trying to say, look, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He gave his life for you. Now, there's some people who are trying to tell you that you need more than that. And I'm here to tell you that's all you need. And when you have the grace and mercy of Jesus and it invades your life and you receive it in the forgiveness of sins, then it will change you forever and the value of your life becomes astronomical because now, like never before, you're valuable to the kingdom of God. You see, it doesn't matter how other people view you. It doesn't matter how other people treat you. It doesn't matter what other people say about you because Jesus says you are worthy. Jesus says you are valuable, so valuable that I would go to the cross and die for you. Now let me share with you just one last thing real briefly because I told you I wanted to share with you this. So not only do you have a responsibility to others, a responsibility to yourself, and a responsibility to persevere, but the last thing I want to share with you is you have a responsibility to God. That's the greatest responsibility. Verse 14 and 15, Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. What counts is a new creation. You have a responsibility to God. The question has to become, and this is where you see this in verse 17. Look at what it says. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The question that I have for you, the question that I have for me, and the question that Galatians wraps up with is, are you willing to become a marked man? Are you willing to become a marked man? The believer that has suffered for Christ is the one who has something to offer. Have you ever thought about that before? If you've suffered for Christ, then you have something to offer. You've got something to give. I, I, you can make this application in any life. I mean, any part of your life, if you think about it. Who, who were your best teachers? Well, they were the ones who suffered and studied hard. Who, who's the best uh, um, air, airplane instructor that I ever had? The flight instructor that I think of the most. Well, the flight instructor that I think of my most is the, my dad. I, I had a lot of people who taught me how to fly. But the one who I think of the most is my dad because he's the one who suffered 
the most. He's the one who fought in World War II. He's the one that went away when he was an 18-year-old young man to learn how to fly planes. He's the one who, when I was born, did so many things to make my life worthy. And then he's the one who, when I was old enough to set foot in a plane, said, let me show you how to fly. He's the one who suffered. He's the one who's most worthy to listen to. Who's the guy you don't want to listen to? The guy who has it all and hasn't really struggled for anything. You know the people that you and I don't like the most? I mean, be honest with me for just a second. The people that we don't like the most are the ones who inherited all their money and did nothing for it. Can I have an amen to the Kardashians right here? I mean, <laughs> you think about it. You know, what have they ever done to earn a dime except take pictures of themselves? So if Miss Kardashian wants to come in here and tell me something, I'm not listening because I really don't think she's really suffered or given much to get where she's gotten. But when your Savior walks in and he changes your life, he suffered everything for you, and he's worth listening to. And this is where he talks to you, and this is where he talks to me. And that's why I like being free. Because I can be free, and I can still follow my Savior. That's what the scripture says. That's what, that's what Paul says here. Let me turn to the book of Isaiah and, and read to you a scripture. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. And he said this is the verse that he lives by. Listen to Isaiah 48. You can go look at it later. Verse 10 and 11. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon lived his life by and what I think you and I ought to live our life by. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Boy, that's a tough deal for you and me. Have you been tested in the furnace of affliction? Are you a believer that wants it to all be easy peasy squeezy? And it's so simple to walk with Jesus. Are you the believer who says, I know this is going to be the life of hard knocks and I'm okay living that way? Boy, we really ought to do this sometime. I, I don't know how we would ever do it, but we really ought to do it. We ought to have a kind of a, a mark show off, you know, like, hey, look at this. This is what happened to me one time when I was on mission trip. Or, hey, look at this. This is what happened to me one time when, when I was sharing my faith with somebody. Or, man, we, we ought to be willing to do that. It's interesting. A lot of people notice when they look, you have to look kind of close, but this knuckle is way bigger uh, than any other knuckle. And the reason is because one time when I was playing basketball, I went to swat a ball that a guy had in his hand, and I hit the ball. And when I did, this finger literally, bone popped out of the skin and came back and was touching my hand. So the front bone here popped out and came back and was laying on top of the finger like that. 
it's one of those deals, it all happened so quick, it really didn't even hurt. And I just kind of looked down and went, that's not right. And uh, <laughs> I grabbed my, my hand and I started walking to the bench and I said, I need help. And uh, I showed, you know, in typical coach, they went, oh my gosh, get that out of my face, you know. <laughs> and uh, so all of a sudden I'm, I'm at the hospital and uh, they're bringing in nursing students because some of the nursing students had never seen a bone exposed, you know, and all that stuff and they wanted to see it. And so they put it all right. Anyhow, got it all fixed. It's all better. In fact, some people have hurt their finger, and uh, I've shown them, hey, you can get it all back, and it'll all work again. It works fine. I'm living proof of that. But this is a scar from my love of basketball. That's what it is. I love basketball. I, I love playing basketball. But this is a scar that still bothers me today. When I go to play golf, I have to put tape around it because the skin there is so sensitive, it'll start ripping and start blistering. So every time I have to do anything that involves this finger, if it involves much manual labor, I have to kind of wrap it up and be really careful with it. And that's just basketball. That's doodly squat nothing. I would love to be able to show you the scars of my suffering for Jesus. Sometimes, though, the struggle is I'm not sure that I have that many. I think that's probably a struggle for all of us. Because we want the life to be so easy, we want it to be so simple that we're not willing to take the scars. And Paul's saying, guess what? If you want to be free, part of the freedom is taking the scars that go along with it. I wrote this down. Let me just close with this. This really overwhelmed me when I saw it. Tim, Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and a pastor up in the New York area, he tweets a lot. and I read them. They're good. But this one, I just went, oh, my gosh. That is the book of Galatians. That's exactly what Paul's trying to say in the book of Galatians. And it, it, it's uh, three sentences. And it just sums up the book of Galatians perfectly. Listen to what Tim Keller said. Religion stresses holiness over grace. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. But Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. Jason, will you and, and the band make your way up here and let me share with this with you one more time. Religion stresses holiness over grace. What, what do you think about when you think about holiness over grace? Well, you, you know, what I wrote down was, well, do we dress right? Do we talk right? Do we walk right? Are we following all the rules? That's what religion stresses. Irreligion stresses freedom over holiness. That means, well, Jesus loves me. I can do anything I want to do. It doesn't matter how I act or the way I live my life because Jesus loves me. But Christianity is freedom through grace that leads to holiness. Listen to me. When you're a believer, you want to be holy because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for your mercy and your grace. And we're thankful for the freedom 
that you give. Father, now as we enter a time of response, may your will be done and may your freedom be felt throughout this place. And we pray it in the most powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Just a moment, Jason is going to leave.